Hey, it's Michelangelo Caruso, everybody. Don't forget, if you like this channel, you need to subscribe and click that silver notification bell. You'll meet cool people like my new buddy, Chris Brogan. How are you, Chris? I am so well. Thanks for having me on, Michael. I've admired you a long, long time. I, we met a couple times on the circuit. I heard you speak at Infusionsoft or Infusioncon a while back. I know you've done over a thousand gigs. You probably don't remember all of them, do you? Well, you know, I remember that one because they sure never had me back again. Um, I love that product still to this day. I love calling it Confusionsoft, which they hate that I do. And I will tell you that at every turn, I, I, I know that they were grunting things and writing in notebooks. And that's why I'll never go back. But I love them. Well, it's a technology platform. They had Brian Tracy one year and he bombed. I mean, he didn't reference the name of the, he didn't say the name of the company or reference technology at all in the entire keynote. And I think, uh, and he, you know, Brian's God in the motivation yeah, of the yeah. universe, but he just went, it, I wouldn't say he went over their head. It was just a complete disconnect. You know, the ET like next door kind of very non-ET. It's, um, I find that interesting. You know, I don't know where we're going everywhere. It, it turns out, but I feel like as a speaker, um, one of the things I say repeatedly that never seems to translate especially well until I'm right there. I find that with speaking, I tell people it's always custom to the room. I will always talk about something I just heard in a conversation. I will always make you feel like it's happening right now in front of you. In fact, the way I love to give speeches, I prefer not slides, just you know, uh, index cards, because then I can shuffle a bit and be yeah. kind of a little more you know, ready to go. And I think that I get, uh, so I'm, I'm starting to get beat up about that, like in some ways, because everyone really wants a packaged, very tight thing, but that's what I think happens. That's what I fear happens, Michael, is that you get the feeling that someone walked into a room and pushed play with their face and didn't, you know, read anybody, didn't connect, didn't nod when they nodded and that sort of a thing. And that's how I do it the way I do it. I've always thought that the working without a net thing was really attractive. You're getting pushback on that and they, they want something prepared and canned. And you know what people want? They want your greatest hits. This is the reason the Beach Boys will never ever perform ever again was because what's his face, you know, Brian wants, wants to only do weird new stuff that no one wants. Yeah. And everybody else only wants to play the hits. And I get it. You know what I mean? We get an emotional feeling when we hear something that we can resonate with that we've heard before, but now we sort of are feeling like we're seeing it in front of us. You know, Steve Martin, I'm a wild and crazy guy. You know, he had to say that for decades. And, you know, he would never do it now if he could save himself from it. But I, that's what we want, evidently. That's what humans want. I don't know. I kind of like the com the combination platter. I like some old and some new. I saw Todd Rundgren one time, and uh, he was channeling his inner rock Todd that night, and he didn't play any hits. He wouldn't play "Hello, It's Me," and people were pissed. Right. You know, and I, uh, you know, I don't. When I was younger, I, I only knew two things about myself when I was really young. I knew I really wanted to be a writer since I was very, very young. Check. I wanted to be the next Van Halen. I definitely wanted to be David Lee Roth in Van Halen. Not so Czech. I played a few different live gigs, but I just, I, I only learned music enough to try to attract women. I never learned it enough to actually attract a following. So I had to just be a keynote speaker. And so I get the sort of showmanship part of it. And I get why people want to sort of, we love resonance, you know, we love cognitive resonance. Um, but what triggers our brain, what makes our brain work is cognitive dissonance. If you are expecting, I say one, two, three, soda pop, you're like, he was supposed to say four. And even then, you knew I was going to say it. 
because you were expecting I'm going to say a fourth thing that's different because the way I use the, the tenor of my voice. So I'm always trying to do that thing because baseline human wiring is basically just love slash comfort and fear slash discomfort, right? We avoid fear and pain. We really want love and comfort. And so I have to mentally make you think something isn't going to go the way it normally goes where you're going to sink into your love and comfort, which means I could ignore everything if I want. I got two bits of advice recently for speaking. I'm still playing with. I mean, it's, 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 it just entered my head. I haven't had a chance to even mix it up yet. But I loved it. It was, uh, if, you, you're gonna, if you're gonna speak in front of a room, you wanna do one of two things. You either wanna disturb the comfortable or comfort the disturbed. That is a beautiful way to think about that. That and sounds like sort of a Brian Tracy thing to say, by the way. Yeah, it's not him. I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I'm with I'd like to provide attribution. I can't actually remember where I read it, but um, I'm playing with it because that is that yin and the yang again, the comfortable, the uncomfortable, the known, the unknown. Um, and and I I use a lot of humor. I know you do too. It's a uh, it's a good way to keep people's attention. Right. And humor, by definition, is a sudden left turn. So there's yeah. so there's the there's that move into the unknown, right? It's totally true. And I think that you know, it's weird the example that came to mind. I, I watch a lot of comedians. I have a lot more in recent months. And uh, one of these guys, Kyle Kinane, uh, he was on a, a series on Netflix called The Stand Ups, and his first joke was a school shooting joke. And he said, I just figure I'll start right in the hole. Like I'll start really down where you don't like me and I'll see if I can get back out. Wow. And I was, I was blown away. One, because you know, some amount of people paying attention to you and me right now just went, ooh, I wouldn't do that. And then of course, you know, the interesting intellectual challenges, but could you make someone laugh? And it's an interesting thought and experiment. And it goes right to the question of what's out of bounds, which, I think humans feel that and want to talk about it right after they hear something like that. So I think anytime we can sort of jolt uh, mental response and psychological response, I think is, the, is a great starting point for yeah. at least discourse and hopefully sometimes learning. Do you think it's harder, getting harder to be funny? No. Um, and, but, but I would have answered that yes if I had started, you know, not paying attention to some of the interviews. Another comedian I like, I tend to like um, – atypical or, or, or not everybody's cup of tea comedians. I really love Anthony Jeselnik, who does a very similar thing. All of his jokes are sort of in the one-liner Stephen Wright sort of style, but very negative. Yeah. He'll say something that's like, you know, a lot of his jokes are about, you know, child abuse or, or hurting animals or something. And his point is, if I can make you laugh at this subject matter, you should give me extra credit. Instead of like, you know, what's with the rates of rental in San Francisco? Like, you know, anybody could tell a dumb joke like that. So his point is, am I more brilliant because I can sort of bring this persona to the stage and say dark, dark things that you may or may not be thinking. Uh, and, and I don't think, I think you can make a joke about anything if you really work to contextualize in what spirit it is. I think it's the spirit of the joke that can be challenging. It doesn't always live on its own body of work, Michael. I think it's, it's a matter of, you have to know where it comes from because another thing Jesselnick kind of had to deal with, especially, you know, very blonde, very attractive white guy. Sometimes he'll say an edgy kind of joke and the wrong people will think he's with them. And yeah. he said, I started kind of changing my set a little for that. You know, I really wanted to adjust to make sure no one would ever mistake me as supporting their side of an argument that he wasn't on. So 
I, I can see that being true, but no, I think, I think you could joke about anything because <laughs> everyone's going to be mad at the thing that they're connected with. You know, you yeah. lose your relative to cancer. Cancer jokes aren't funny to you, but cancer jokes are funny to cancer patients sometimes. So they're Hospital funny to humor, some, right? Cancer has been around a long time, but what's not been around a long time is this trial by Twitter thing. And there's been, you know, uh, a lot of backlash against comedians and their quote, ill-timed, their ill-conceived humor. Seinfeld's famous for saying he won't do colleges anymore because it, 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 everything's, um, you know, slapped back at him. Chris Rock right. famously said, uh, you can't tell a joke about a black kid in the corner wearing red tennis shoes anymore. Um, and the latest thing is, accents uh, all these um, actors and actresses are stepping down from roles where they're they're pretending to be somebody that they're not culturally right. speaking because it's 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 inappropriate um i i just wonder if anybody's and by the way i'm not a fan of pillaging other people's cultures sure but i just wonder if anybody's thought ahead to you know are we playing chess or checkers here because what's next that that we will never do uh, any kind of uh, impressions again because impressions are a form of appropriation. Absolutely true. And, and, and I think there's, there's a few things to that one. One is that uh, I think I saw Kristen Bell say it. She plays a, a biracial character in one of her animated things, a lot of animated voiceover work in the world. Um, and she said, it's not just so much that I don't really want to represent a person of color anymore. I thought it'd be kind of cool if I could open the job up to someone who is uh, a person of color and all that. And she's saying, I'd like to kind of give up my seat at the table, which Alexis Ohanian at Reddit just did. He said, I'm not going to be the boss anymore. I'd really like to give my board seat up, not just his boss, but his board seat uh, to a person of color so that he could better represent what he wanted to see the company look like. Famously yeah. married to Serena Williams, you know, he made that choice. So I think there's that. I think also, though, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of questions. Uh, why am I blanking on his name? The guy who plays Apu. Um, there were a lot of questions uh, brought to Hank Azaria. And there were a lot of questions brought to him about what do you feel? And so there's even a documentary about it. I think it's called like the trouble with Apu because there's this Indian born guy, sorry, American born Indian guy who is saying, I love the Simpsons. Oh my gosh, Apu, what do we do with this or whatever? Or, uh, you know, there's a lot of things we have to kind of rethink that were funny, but there's another last thread to this that I saw recently from someone talking specific to the black lives matters protest. They said, we asked you to stop kneeling on black people's necks and you said, don't worry, we'll delete a few episodes of the Golden Girls. Meaning, yeah, thanks for taking an action, but it doesn't do anything for the larger story. And so there's a lot of that sort of virtue signal work going on right now that's not germane to the scenario. And it's not whether or not it should be deleted. In fact, it absolutely shouldn't because it was comedy. It wasn't, it wasn't yeah. blackface. And, but that's the fights we're gonna get in. And, and, and again, it's always, it's distracting to the real points. And I think that one thing I've taken out of the quarantine experience was that we need brevity, we need clarity, and we need to make sure that our message is absolutely crisp and crystal because we just don't have the time to deliver it and people are taking much less time to receive it. Yeah. Um, well, if there is no context, then it's hard to take it out of context. Let's just, just say it and get it done and keep it simple enough for a second grader to understand it, I guess. You've been tracking these people that have uh, run these restaurants in um, like a, they're running a, I don't know, Mexican restaurant, but they're not Mexican. And then they take heat for it. Right. What's the next extension of that, that, that you can't cook Mexican food at, at home because you're not Mexican? And no, see, I think, I think that's where, 
I think that's where a challenge comes up. You know, I think, I think that's where, you know, cuisine is one of the best ways to learn about people and learn about. Where I was going to go. And I, I don't see that being an issue. Um, it, it, that again is one of those points where people kind of bring it forward at strange times, you know, and there's a little cantina in my town right now and it's just starting to open. He, he got, he got ready to launch his restaurant like the week before quarantine. And so all his investments, everything he made to try to put this restaurant live, which nobody has any money if they're starting a restaurant. That's the only true thing about a restaurant is you start with a really small bag and you really hope you make some customers. Um, and he's just now opening. He's a white guy opening a cantina, but it's not called a Mexican anything. It's just a cantina, but he makes burritos and stuff. I don't think he's going to get a fight, but I think that, you know, it's just a question of our, you know, again, it's all context. Are you doing it in this way? Or are you doing it that way? So I think it's worth talking about. Yeah. Um, John Stewart says we're working on the gilding. We should be working on the building that, that we're changing the names of buildings. The Woodrow Wilson's name, president of the United States, former president of Princeton being taken off of a building at Princeton statues being taken down. Uh, thinking again, four and five moves ahead. Is this going to, is the, does this forward the agenda for BLM or anybody? It's an interesting question. It is. I, I feel you know, removing iconography of a, you know, a group of people who, by the way, those statues weren't put up in any historic time frame. They were put up in the sixties for civil rights reasons. Okay. And uh, they were, they were used as counter argument to the civil rights movement. So I'm all for those going down. I just think that again, you know, it's, it's calories in a direction. Uh, a, a person I interviewed last week, Alice Fuller said, you know, there's a lot of flowers given out at the funeral that would have been a lot better if they were received while the person was still upright, you know, and don't yeah. give flowers to the dead basically. And I think that that's what matters now. You know, what did you do? What did you do? That's an active verb, not what did you do that tries to go backwards in any way? What did you do? That's now that makes it better. Yeah. I'm with you. You, you know, let's talk about this uh, communication and how it works and how it's misinterpreted. And um, you produce an, a massive amount of content, uh, I think mostly through writing, you've done a fair amount of speaking, as you said earlier, and that's how I found out about you. But you've had a, a you know, multiple New York Times bestseller, you've co-authored, you've authored by yourself. Um, what's the secret to all that production? I, I've, I've read that you, of course, have a discipline and you, you're, you favor simple writing, but that's not the answer to how it comes out like a fire hose. You know, it's a lot like, well, there's a, there's a few pieces of that storyline. So I write all the time. I also have podcasts all the time at one time or another. I have a YouTube channel. Um, I make video. I'm always, I mean, you could say, I mean, I just like to hear myself talk. I guess that could be accurate. But I, uh, I have more ideas than I have time left on this planet. And I, I just, there's, there's two steps to it to make it really easy. And there are two steps anyone talking right now could do, like paying attention to us right now could do. One is I have an ideas file that I run in Evernote. And, and the only reason I mentioned the software is because it means you can have it on the web anywhere there's a browser. I can have it on my phone local. So even if I don't have internet, I can have it. Meaning I have no excuse. And so I have a file for ideas that I keep in Evernote. And I add 10, I add 10 ideas every single day, no matter what, 10 a day. And the ideas sometimes are really stupid. I can say, I can put an idea in there and say, uh, do we forget to keep legalizing cannabis? I just made that one up. I don't know. Saw the plant behind you and I thought, pot plant. So I thought, you know, did, uh, did we forget to keep legalizing cannabis? So I might write that down as one of my 10. And so if I do that, then I think to myself, um, 
you know, okay, well, if I, if I go with that, if I, if I accept that that's what I want to do, oh, I just realized I'm not even using my Now I'm using my mic. Hopefully the sound changed dramatically. I was using the plain old one built in. Um, I think that if I, if I, if I want to like write my 10 ideas a day, that's one. The other is I've committed to 2000 to 2000 words a day minimum, no matter what. And what I also do is like right now I'm writing a book. So it's closer to 4,000 words a day, give or take a, you know, any day where I get derailed in some way, but by depression or something, 2000 for sure, as high as 4,000 when I'm writing a book. So those two things alone, 10 ideas, 2000 words, I'm always creating material. There's, there's never going to be an end of material. Um, I had slowed down on posting on my blog, but I'm taking some uh, uh, lessons on how to do some SEO kind of stuff. And it requires that I post a lot more frequently so I can see the result more quickly. Um, and so even then I'm just, I'm just producing. And I, I find that it's, um, the, so I gave you two things to make a list uh, and then write off the list 2000 words. The other two things that go with that is use outlines, you know, table of contents kind of outlines, just, just bullets to, to fill in those pieces so that you never have to worry. Like, did I cover this? Did I cover that? You don't have to blank page it. You just have to fill it in. And then the last piece of that is don't be afraid to be wrong or make mistakes. I look at, so my blog has been, I've written one way or another, started in 1998. There's about, I think you can only go back as far as maybe 2005 and a half because some of the old websites I used don't even exist anymore. The companies are long since gone. <clears throat> so the Wayback Machine doesn't even have a good copy because I didn't even own my own domain. So you can't even look at chrisbrogan.com until like 2005, unless you start sniffing around. Right. And so, Michael, one of the things that I, I do is I make sure that I don't care if, you know, someone writes me something in the old days of blogging, by the way, when blogging was so hot, which was, uh, you know, like, let's say 2006. So that's, that's eight years after I started. Eight years later, people started coming over to my blog and telling me why I was an idiot. And then they would write blog posts about why Chris Brogan was an idiot. And so I got 661,000 useful, valid inbound links from all over the web. Some of them saying I'm an idiot that continue to digitally validate me to Google and everybody else. So I don't care if I made mistakes. Okay. I was an idiot. Thanks for your links. Yeah. I, I, I wish more people talked about that link between uh, the blank page and actually delivering on your idea. Um, Evernote is an idea collection device where you can just dump this stuff, you know, and just keep it there in, in storage until you're ready for it. Yeah. Because a lot of people struggle with that, that muse, you know, it's time to write. I'm all excited. I, I, I sit down and lick my pen if we still do that and I'm ready to go and there's no idea. But if you can go to that idea collection device, like you do with Evernote, you're golden, man. And when I write my books, um, like right now I'm in the middle of writing a book, I never end a paragraph on the paragraph. I ended a few words into the end of the sentence so that I go, oh yeah, I'm just going to finish this sentence. You've heard that tip before. Um, I never finished at the edge of a section. Like the worst thing you could do is leave yourself that the next spot's going to be blank. And, you know, the, the best you might do is start the next section and write half of a sentence. You know, the thing I hate most about cats is, and then you just leave it blank and then you better remember when you show up, but at least you have a starting point. I do the and same thing that, when I'm reading for different, for a different reason, I guess I get to an end of a section. I just want to see what I'm, what's, you know, preview of coming attractions. There's right. no purpose to that, but it, I, I do think there's something to that idea of flow. I, I do too. And I think, you know, again, 
we're in a different world all of a sudden and the world says brevity has to exist. The U.S. Department of Labor and Statistics, way before COVID, by the way, U.S. Department of Labor and uh, uh, Statistics said that the average American is reading a total of 19 minutes a day. A total, including email, text, Facebook, tweets, blog posts, and whatever you thought was so important that they should read it. 19 minutes. That's pre-COVID. I have read zero words out of a printed or digital book since COVID, partly because I'm writing a book and I never like to read and write at the same time, partly because uh, I don't want to. I, you know, I'd rather just binge the worst Netflix shows you can imagine and watch really old comedy sets. I just don't have the energy to want to read a book yet. And, and so my aspiring author friends, I always say, it's, not, it's such a privilege to get a book out there, but no one's sitting around eagerly waiting for your book, so it's got to be good. Yeah. You've got to make it decent or no one's going to care. It's not interesting enough for them to put down, you know, Downton Abbey. It also begs the question, why are you writing a book if nobody's reading anymore? Because I'm an idiot. Like, you know, why 10 books, this is going to be my 10th. It's like an addiction at this point. I'm a stupid fool. But the thing is, a book is a perfect piece of software when you're done. It is, it is the program. It's like back when we bought software and it came in a box. You know, and it had a little manual with it. Like when we brought our first video games and it had a cartridge. Well, my first video games, you had to type them out of the magazine. But, you know, it's, it's that. And I think that the other thing a book is, uh, I think it was uh, Seth Godin, a book's a perfect souvenir for your event. You know, you go to the speech, you buy the book. Um, uh, David Meister said in The Trusted Advisor, the book is the best $25 business card you can't buy. And the other thing a book does is uh, back when people used to travel in airplanes, it was a thing. Uh, CEOs and CMOs would walk through the Hudson's news after they'd bought their M&Ms and bought their two liter bottle of water and they'll find a book and they'll go, man, that Chris Brogan seems interesting. I'm going to take this book on this plane and I get booked. So that book that $20 of which I see a dollar 14 of could be 20,000 in a speech and some work that was pre COVID prices uh, <laughs> right now, like 800 bucks and a happy meal would get me on your stage. So, um, it is definitely an experience where there's still a point for books, but oh my gosh, I, I, I shake all my aspiring authors and say, books are wonderful, but nobody can wait to read your book. No, nobody's sitting around going, I can't wait, except for whoever loves you. The other thing is that, you know, handing out a book that's three or four years old doesn't do you any favors either. It's got to be something that's latest and greatest. Hence the part of the addiction is, is being fresh and, having something on the, on the book stand right now. Early last year, I had a stupid idea. I realized that Trust Agents was going to be 10 years old in August of 2019. And I messaged Wiley and I said, we should totally release a 10th anniversary edition of Trust Agents. It was my big one. It was the one that won with Julian Smith. I messaged Julian. I said, I just asked Wiley if they want to do a 10th anniversary. Wait on. He goes, okay. Now, Julian's the CEO of a company now. He like, has no time to write a new book. He has no interest in doing this. We get back our old files and it is awful. It's atrocious. One, the book is crap. I can't know how we won the New York Times bestseller list. I look at it and I'm like, we're idiots. We don't know how to write. He goes, we're idiots. Then um, this came out in 2009. The paper smelled so fresh. And as you turn pages, they were for software apps that didn't exist. Now books, uh, mainstream published books are like kimchi. You put them in the ground for six months and then you take them out. So everything you wrote as brand new has six months lag on it. But this book, when people had it in 09 was like, this, this wasn't even software when it came out. The, uh, you know, 
it, it felt like I was prescient, which I wasn't. I just wrote about things that happened that day. Yeah. And six months later, it felt like I was still pretty new. You know, remember, people today in 2020 think they're just discovered podcasts. So anyway, Julian and I rewrite the book. It's coming out in a few, I guess a week or two. I don't even know. There's 25 of them are coming to my house as, you know, gifts you give away as, a, as an author for the 10th anniversary version where we had to go in and delete so much stuff that doesn't exist anymore. You know, I'm talking about things like Plurk or Jaiku or Pounce or Ustream or all these other stupid, don't write the names of technology into a book. It's the stupidest thing you could ever do. That's why I, I, I don't envy these cats that write books on how to use uh, social media platforms. Cause you know, as soon as they change the platform, the book is dated and you know, they're going to change it. Yeah. I wrote Google plus for business. You know why I did? Cause they gave me a fat check. They said, you want to write Google plus for business? Yes, I do. That was my second most selling book of all the books I ever wrote. Had nothing, there's nothing you could do with that book now besides. Why wouldn't Google plus be the best thing ever? It's owned by Google. Well, I felt like when I got the early days of it, I was like, now this is a software. This is social media. Look at what you can do. You could do these things. And people were like, oh my gosh, he's totally right. I sold a hundred dollar webinar the second week the thing was up saying, want to know what I just figured out after staying on this for a hundred hours. And people were like, yeah, it's a hundred bucks. Okay. People wrote the most awful articles about me. Thank you for inbound links. They linked to the sales page. Thank you for that. And they said, I can't believe you're selling your knowledge of Google Plus, which is a platform that's only been open for like 10 days. I said, yeah, I'll save you 100 hours because I'll tell you everything I did wrong in the first 100 hours. First adopters, right? It was great. I made 10 grand. It was perfect. I had 10 grand at 100 bucks a piece. So, you know, 1,000 buyers. Your writing style is really simple uh, and you credit the shipping news. Can you tell us that story? I love the shipping news. Shipping news is a book that when, if you try to read it right now, you're going to read it and hate yourself. You'll be three pages in and go, this is the dumbest thing anyone's ever told me to do. Annie Prue wrote it. She, it was a book, you know, set in like Newfoundland and the, the Maritimes of Canada. And it is, it's what I learned from the book is ultra brevity. She would write a sentence and the sentence would be something like, you know, um, Coyle got up from his nap and made eggs, but they were cold. And that's three sentences, not one. That's, that's one sentence, but she wrote it all like that. And then, and then she'd write after cold, she'd write with shells. And, and like these sentences are all little bullets. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing I ever read. This is profound. I don't have to write a grammatically accurate sentence. I don't have to whatever. I just saw today that the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, as we speak, has put the word irregardless in the dictionary. My dad is going to commit suicide later tonight. Everybody, you heard it here first. He didn't write a note. It's just going to be the word irregardless on his tombstone. Well, are we seeing words showing up in the, in the lexicon, certainly, and then in the dictionary, just because a lot of people use them? That's exactly what a dictionary is meant to if do. That, if that ain't the tail wagging the dog, I don't know what is. That is exactly what it is, though. That's what, that's what language is. And so when I saw what Prue did, to go back to your question, I thought, my gosh, who told me I had to have a subject and a verb? This is amazing. And so um, what I always tell people about a lot of tricks in writing, you've got to use them like a condiment, not a meal. I never would say to you, Michael, you've got to come over. We're going to have ketchup. No. Like, you know, I mean, I could say that, but then you'd be like, oh, thanks, but I have a plan for the next 85 years. So I can't make it. But, but, but you can, you know, ketchup on a hot dog is some people's thing. Yeah. And mustard on a hot dog is other people's things. That condiment of any Prue writing brevity 
it's now it's now coded into um, SEO and whatnot. So in my WordPress, when I write, my WordPress says some of these sentences, in fact, kind of a lot too many sentences have more than 25 words. You should probably rethink that. That's right. And so I go back and go, okay, and I'll break them up. You know, I like the software telling me what to do. It's fine. I don't mind having a robot overlord. And I, I, I was taught very early on, tell it to me like I'm six years old from one of my professors, Ken Hadge. And uh, I love that so much because I think that, you know, we should eschew obfuscation. That's one of my favorite jokes. You know, <laughs> like we should, we should make it easy to read stuff instead of like, you know, seek to sound too clever. When I was younger, I wanted to sound clever. And now I just want to sound like I might know what I mean. That's all I want. The old man in the sea did that for me. That's a really good choice too. Oh, I love Hemingway. His sentence construction is pretty solid, but the, but the, they're very short and easy to get to. And I was thinking when you mentioned the coding, you know, like uh, you, this sentence is, is too long for the average person. Try consider another word. There's a little bit of that going on in a kind of undisciplined way in texting. Yes. Where everything is kind of reduced to the lowest common denominator. Words become abbreviations. Abbreviations become letters. Um, it's frightening in a way it makes, and you talk about language changing, certainly it's going to, but, and this is how we get to be old people. I suppose we look back and hearken, you know, the, the old, the good old days when we've spoken complete sentences, there's a whole generation of people that stopped saying the phrase, you're welcome. There's a whole lot of people who now say not a problem, which makes me stabby, but that's a customer service opinion, not a, not a grammar one, but uh, TX and YW, and like IKR, I know, right? And happy birthday when someone writes HB. I am murdery about that. However, uh, like HB, like you couldn't type the other like 11 and a half cent letters to tell me happy birthday. Facebook already told you. Facebook said it's your birthday. So you don't even know it's my birthday. Facebook said it. And you're like, okay, I better say something to Brogan. And then you type HB, Chris Brogan, you know, and I always do the same thing back. I type TX, you know? You find that insulting. So uh, I would say that, but, it, but, but the opposite, like you said, you know, here's how you know you're old and that sort of thing. Memes and things like memes, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by GIFs. I'm fascinated by emoji being used for other things. You know, the eggplant was just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much going on with emoji that, that speak back to thousands of year old hieroglyphics is what people say. But it's not that. It's it's that the language is just software. It's just a, it's just a velocity tool. It's it's a technology, right? Handwriting, learning how to do actual cursive handwriting. People are like, oh, no one teaches cursive. You know why? We invented phones. You know, we don't need to use a pen. You know, it turns out, and they're like, oh, you know, you're never going to need that. Yeah, you know when you need that when we have to write Constitution to the sequel, and that's not going to happen in this lifetime without a really nifty war. And so I think that learning the the tools of communication that's why video that's why brevity twitter text there were physical limitations to why that's why the qwerty keyboard's the qwerty keyboard because mechanically all those things clacking it was the least likely combos to touch each other where they existed we know this now but we're not all going to learn dvorak typing just because you could type 80 times faster because we're idiots and we we know qwerty now with our eyes closed so there's so much that in that thing you just said michael because it's like if we choose not to if we're like well i'm not gonna do that you've just made a fork 
in culture. And you're like, I don't know why marketing's so hard these days. That's why. That's why, because you didn't pick up video. You didn't decide you would even at least look at TikTok. Don't use TikTok. It's a Chinese spy tool. But you didn't even look. And right. I think that's the thing. Well, it's the difference between, uh, between talking smack about the New Deal and just observing it and, and seeing what happens. It's not like you can control it anyway. I mean, you could bitch as much as you want about texting. It's not going away. No. And, and it isn't because it works. These people that dig in and say, oh, I'm not good at technology. It's just an affirmation that's going to stick them forever. I mean. It's, um, I wrote about a long, long time ago, that email used to be the gate jumper. If you had someone's email address, Bill Gates used to answer email because no one else had email. And yeah. so he'd be like, oh, how novel. I'm just going to answer this. And then everyone had email and email spam was a thing. And so every person in Nigeria thought this is perfect. It's a, email spam is like an ongoing multi-billion dollar industry. It will never end. There will always be uh, ways to, to change because if you're sitting around and it's this or don't eat, you're going to work on it for a bit. Um, but then we said Twitter. Twitter, like in, in 09 when we wrote Trust Agents, we're like, we use Twitter the way people used to use email. We gate jump with it. We didn't say it because Twitter's cool. We gate jump because everyone's, it's so novel. If you look at who follows me and then you, you, you filter for verified users who follow me, it is ridiculously weird. A bunch of entertainers and celebrities follow me for no value. I cannot fathom what they look at my tweets and go, oh, that Chris Brogan. Hmm. But I've a long time ago DM'd Vanilla Ice and had a whole conversation with Vanilla Ice because why not? Do you want tickets to his upcoming concert? Yeah, he yeah. It turns out he uh, he finally uh, backed down on that one. He finally decided maybe I shouldn't be the one guy out there, like on the horizon with a target on me. Him and Sammy Hagar. I think Hagar wanted to do a concert. He got major bitch slapped by the by the Twitter community. God bless Sammy. Back to writing for a second. It's interesting to me that we started with pictures on cave walls, then we got really hyper developed with language, and now we're going back to pictures again. You go to most news sites, CNN, there's a video version of the story of, of the story that would probably take you 90 seconds to read. Yep. Because, and it would take you longer to watch the video when you factor in the commercial that's always in front of it, the advertisement. But people like, I read, I read the other day that, oh, I know it was Andrew McCabe. He said that uh, President Trump is not a fan of reading, which I think right. most people realize. And they said there was a thing in the inner, inner circle when they were doing the presidential daily briefings, that if you wanted him to pay attention, you better convert it to some sort of video or pictures because that's how he likes to take in information. So part of me wants to say something mean because it's easy. And then the other part of me says it's true of everybody though. And when I say everybody, I always mean the, the, the larger gestalt, right? You know, right. one of the things that marketers have to do all the time is say, just because I like it this way doesn't mean that's what people like. It's what I like. I right. much prefer text, you know, that kind of a thing. Everyone says that stuff to me. I'm like, people want short form. And, and someone write back to me, I much prefer long form. I said, the, every part of that sentence is one unit of human. You know, I'm saying billions of people now prefer short form. And so with video, um, my kids, so, so Reddit, right? So a lot of people don't necessarily even spend time on Reddit. They, they, they haven't ever looked at it. They've just heard about it. Usually kind of as this weird fringy place, but it's not. Every joke you see on the internet was there three days earlier on Reddit. We all saw it. We've all laughed about it. 
by the time you've seen it, it's three days later because people are scared, you know, sharing it with their friends. Well, there's a, there's like an industry, but nobody makes any money of YouTubers who go and find their favorite parts of certain Reddit uh, communities and then shoot it as a video oh, and, no quote, and quote the Reddit pieces. And then people like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. And on days where I feel extra depressed at my hundreds of views, I go and look at some of these sites where they'll literally read a screen and you will literally listen to them read the screen with funny music in the background and go, huh, it's a pretty entertaining video. And it's got like 381,000 views. So is it martial law now in your view? I mean, what happened to good old fashioned attribution? That is a great question and an interesting language for it because Marshall McLuhan was one of the people, you know, the media is the message. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on with a lack of attribution. It, you know, Reddit is, um, I mean, how, how's the creator of a, a line of comment on another thread of comments, how's he ever gonna get that attribution? I said it first, okay. Now inside the Reddit community, if someone does that to someone, you know, if I steal your post, repost it my way, they'll try to attack each other and try to get it knocked down. And a lot of times, because of that community, they can vote it. But once it leaves that border and hits something like YouTube, it's over. No one's going to win. Well, it used to be a thing in comedy. There was honor among comedians. If, uh, if you go all the way back to Carson, if he was going to use a joke, he, he would yeah. buy it from you for, I don't know how they priced it or how, they, how that worked. And right. even, in the, even in the later days with the talk shows, Fallon, Fallon's producer would contact you and say, I want to pay you $35. We're going to use your joke. End of story. Sign this, sign this NDA, whatever. Totally true. Uh, but yeah, what happens when the trail gets cold and you can't tell who said it first? Absolutely. And then, you know, in comedy, there's that whole other scenario where people don't fully understand. There's a, there's a thing that happens where it was easy enough that two or three people could have come to the same conclusion. So you'll see a video that really lines up that it seems so clear someone steals jokes. And then you could argue on every single one of them. If you spend just a little time, you could see how someone else could derive it that way. There's, there's a kind of either or for those. And I think that, in, like I said, the word uh, gestalt or gestalt, I've never actually known. I, I think it's gestalt. I think um, there is a, this could be like GIF and GIF. There's this thing where after a while, no one cares. That's the depressing part. You know, as a guy who creates intellectual property for a living, I really don't want someone to just grab a chunk of trust agents. But people have stolen parts of my blog posts and rewritten them into full books before just without the attribution part and completed and published a, a New York, you know, not a New York times bestseller. I might feel a little more murdery, but you know, a, a book out in the mainstream that you could buy on Amazon. And you just kind of, the only thing I do to deal with that personally is I just think I never talked to the person about it. Don't care. I only think this, if they need to steal my ideas to write a book, like it's going to take them a few years to keep catching up with all my ideas. And I still have endless ones. I'm going to die with ideas still in my folder. That's my plan. So they can have those ones if they can figure out my password. Well, that's the innovation game that, that you've got a seven year head start on your patent. That's that right. In the game, you better invite, invent something again next year and the year after that, the year after that, because China's chasing you. Exactly. Silicon Valley's chasing you. Yeah. You're on Twitter a lot. Is that your favorite platform right now? Twitter's my favorite uh, besides. Uh, Twitter is, uh, Twitter's my favorite for just sort of blather back and forth. My absolute favorite social network is email and it will always be. I'm an email marketing guy. I love email. I, I keep a very active list. I, I delete people from it very often for not opening. 
And I, I just really try to keep and deliver the best value I can there every Sunday. How big is your list right now? We just purged. Uh, so I think it's like 12850 um, we purge as often as we can. It has to be people just opening mails, replying, uh, clicks at least. If I see an open or a click, you might live a few more weeks. Yeah. So. Well, you almost have to these days. Uh, back to Infusionsoft, I just got a warning that uh, apparently not enough people are opening my email. And so they, want, they, they insist on the purge and the dedupe and the, the general cleaning up. And they say it's for me, but I think it's right. really for them. Well, they want to save database rows, which is hilarious given that storage is like ubiquitous now. Well, you know, they also, they're the ones that get fined if I'm right. a spammer or I'm uh, pushing out stuff I shouldn't be pushing out. Yeah, a million dollars per uh, in Canadian market. So, you know, there's some reasons for it. GDPR in, in Europe and whatnot is also that. So, I mean, there, I get why they do it. We do it just because we really want to brag a super big open rate, not a super big list rate. I, I want to know that when I send something out, it absolutely gets read and picked up by a human being. And then if they take an action, they do or don't. I yeah. way prefer that than people, you know, I see, I saw in the early days of Twitter, people buying a gazillion followers. Yeah. And then some like musician would like uh, put out an album and be like, no one bought. And I'd always reply, that's weird. Cause it's cause robots don't have wallets. And yeah, that was my response. About that. Some people might think of a list of 12,000 is really minuscule for a multi New York Times bestselling author. It's I think, really I think big lists are overrated. Active lists are where it's at. I think, you know, where people take action. I mean, my Twitter following, well, it's been knocked down a bunch because they, they actively delete bots, which makes me cheery. It's only like 331,000. I say only. Some people have 5,000. If I could trade, I would absolutely love a three, three quarter. I mean, you know, one third of a million people email list. that would change my life. But I can't. But you know what? I get like eight to 10 replies on Twitter. If I send something out and I want to reply, I get it. I get a reasonable amount of clicks, but not a lot of clicks, nothing like what you'd imagine. Even I don't even get 1% of clicks when I send out a tweet, when I send out my email, my open rates like 78%. So I would, I, I get exponential by count, not by percentage, by count exponential numbers, more uh, action from my email list than I do my Twitter. Me too. It's my primary marketing muscle. Have you been able to, yeah. to move people from your magnificent Twitter following to your email list? So rarely, you know, because the Why only kind that? of people who hit reply for me are the people who are already my pals. But I don't do a lot of like, come get my newsletter. And I definitely don't do anything like, um, uh, you know, come, come check out my cool offer. Like I, I, there is no funnel in operation on chrisbrogan.com unless it's something I wrote years ago for entertainment, like a, like a um, content upgrade you know, here's this thing, but if you want the ebook version, I've got that, do this, give me your email. Like I've got a few of those lying in wait somewhere in some posts, but even right now, I don't even have a pop-up to grab email. And I would recommend that to any human alive, get at least a pop-up, uh, but I don't have it. And, I'm, and I, I don't feel bad. I just, I want humans and I really want them to be active. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like collecting that we do, right? Like especially when we're kind of interested in something, we sign up to like 18 lists and we don't actually really do anything with any of them. So I just really want, I want living people that are going to- well, Back to the legitimate followers in your, in your email list. You're probably yeah. familiar with the old document. It was a long time ago, 1,000 true fans. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, Kevin Kelly. Oh, I didn't remember his name, yeah. Yeah. And the premise was that if you could just get a thousand people to buy everything that you produce the rest of your life, 
you'd be golden. You wouldn't have to worry about big ass lists, large Twitter following, nothing like that. That's all I want. That is, that is still to this day. I don't want, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk when he said he was going to, by the way, I, I am behind every wrong piece of advice that you, you can ever imagine. Gary says, I want to start a, um, you know, a media company. I want to start like an ad agency kind of a company. And I was like, Oh, that sounds awful. So like the revenue on that, it's like 1.5 or whatever. VaynerMedia. Great with VaynerMedia. I am not, you know what I mean? So, um, but I said, I would just rather the thousand true fans thing. It just seems like way more fun. Kevin Kelly, who wrote that article, he and I, I met him in person for the first time in Norway, as you would, you know, not, you know, not in San Diego, San Francisco where he hangs out, but in Norway, cause we were both at the same conference and I was sitting on a couch next to him. And, uh, I said, I have to fanboy. I have to, cause just like everybody else who's ever said it, you know, the thousand true fans is like the best article. And he goes, he goes, I'm so sad about that in some ways. He goes, cause it's not, I've written way better articles. It's just my most popular one in that way. What's well, a so, good title. It's compelling. Yes. Um, you interviewed Gary Vanerchuk early on. I don't know how early, uh, he looked pretty young. You look pretty young. Was that an odd deal that he, uh, I had heard at one point that Gary was just saying yes to everybody because he thought it would come back around. Is that what happened? No. I mean, we've known each other since 06. We've, we've been at a lot of the same events. There was a time, which is so weird to imagine, because Gary had been, he was so much more successful than me at this time. But there was a time I was so many worlds ahead of him and like followers and all these sorts of things for a moment in time. And then Gary being Gary went whoosh and shot by everybody alive and suddenly was on TV shows telling Will I am what to do, you know, and I'm still like, you know, hmm, do I get steak or lobster this week? You know, like it's definitely, you know, weird. It's like apples to M&Ms, you know, the connection here. But he, um, in, in, a, in one of the books I wrote, Freak Shall Inherit the Earth, there's two whole chapters dedicated to success because I really strive to point out that it's what you want you know, what's your, what's your definition of success that matters most? And mm -hmm. mine does not involve nearly any of the things that Gary's wants. And, and Gary's, Gary looking at me would be like, oh my God, I would never want to be Chris Brogan, you know, but for different reasons than you'd think. I mean, mine is just that like, I decided I really wanted this kind of life. I really wanted to be a lot more around my kids. I had been sort of neglecting them as I was coming up through the ranks. And I said, I really can't do that. Like I'm just not around for anything and I can't do that made that choice i decided i didn't want to work just blathering i wanted to like get in and do some things i thought were meaningful and and you know we just choose our different paths and there's people who have way more money but my personal definition of success is just being able to say no to the things i don't want to do and then that way my gosh am i successful not yeah. the last few months so the world blew up but right before that i was one of the most successful guys i knew because i could say no to anything yeah Right now, I'll like kiss you for a cheeseburger. You've uh, you've made it through some struggles. Uh, talk to us a bit about your depression. I know you've been open about it, and I think um, my personal feeling is that there's going to be a lot of people with issues at the end of the pandemic, and I don't think we're even close to seeing the end of it. We're talking about things like self medication, boredom. Even I, and I'm pretty upbeat guy. I've had these moments during the pandemic where I think to myself, I've kind of lost my purpose because my purpose is being out there helping people. And now I can't go out there and help people. Therefore, you know, who am I? That kind of a thing. Weird shit. Yeah. I never had struggled with any of that before. Uh, you've been clinically, you were clinically depressed. Am. Am. It's uh, like being no. an alcoholic. You always are. 
Well, I mean, like diabetic, right? You're never not diabetic. You're always diabetic. It's, so there's two types of depression. We got to talk about that first. Depression, the way you're kind of phrasing it is a lot like a lot of people see it, which is like down in the dumps or I don't feel good or I'm going through something that is really rough. Depression, the condition is a chemical thing. There are certain chemicals that I don't make or that I make very pitifully that you need to feel reasonably mentally level dopamine, adrenaline. There's all these like things that drive parts of our body, uh, endorphins. These things uh, are necessary for certain reactions. And uh, dopamine, by the way, is the big one. And serotonin, for instance, uh, reuptake inhibitors, for instance, you've heard SSRI. Most depression drugs are trying to fix a challenge specifically with serotonin. By the way, most depression drugs do awful things uh, side effects wise. They're not really good for you. Uh, they have saved lives. So I'm saying they're not good for you, but they've given a lot of people their life back, but you have to trade something. You get fatter, uh, you lose your sex drive. And when I, you know, the first time I started trying these different drugs out and I was like, lose my sex drive, I'd rather be depressed. Like I am going to be depressed if I have no sex drive. So forget it. That problem's going to get worse. Yeah. Worse. (laughs) You know, so I said, there's got to be some other ways. And, and, you know, there was a, there was, oh, and so drug companies, by the way, or rather insurance companies say, this is like this. So just take this one. It doesn't matter. That's what they say. I say, no, it's totally not like that. And they're like, shut up one user. Like, you know, we already said yes with these companies. We have these deals with these companies. That's the thing that makes me crabby. We don't have a deal with that company. They're too new. Their drugs too new. We don't know what you're saying. Then there's experimental drugs. So this is a really new interesting thing with depression. It turns out that a drug that started as an anesthetic that became a horse tranquilizer and then a street drug is now one way to treat depression, ketamine. Ketamine's a molecule, naturally occurring molecule. Started as an anesthetic, but it turned out when they put you under for like, you know, to to reset your broken leg, uh, you would have insane hallucinations and lose your mind for a bit and then come out and go, whoa, I don't want whatever that was again. And so they found better anesthetics. Then they gave it to horses. They're like, oh, you're dealing with some pain here. Boop, take that. Because a horse can't complain, so they think it's fine. They stopped giving it to horses, and the drug world, you know, people who like to do drugs and kind of self-medicate, they were like, ketamine's awesome. Now, I, um, I took it experimentally in a hospital with like an IV and a nurse and all that, and you you hallucinate a lot. Like, um, you know, it was really weird that the nurse says to me, have you ever tripped on any drugs before? And I was like, I don't do drugs. I, this is new. She goes, well, you're going in for a really weird show. Just try not to be freaked out. By the way, you know what sentence is not helpful? Try not to freak out. So I get the ketamine. Oh, and by the way, you got to take like, you know, lift home because if you, you can't drive yourself. I get the ketamine. I have an insane bunch of hallucinations. Colors are numbers and, and, and the walls are melting and all this kind of crazy stuff. It's really interesting. The second time I ever took it, I, I realized that the thumb is the daddy of all your fingers because the thumb is the one you feel when you touch your fingers. That's the kind of drug. Uh, the minute I get home, I go and I fall asleep for the remainder of the day. I wake up the next day birds whistling singing the sun is shiny but it's raining but who cares the sun is still out there somewhere i'm sure i felt amazing like i had not felt in 20 years but you never kick depression you just deal with it you combat it you kind of there's some life choice like type 2 diabetes is you know you ate too much and now you have diabetes kind of diabetes 
depression has some things in common with that because depression, if you go to sleep at regular hours, depression's a little better. If you don't put yourself in stressful situations, depression's a little better, etc. So I started writing about depression as it applies to entrepreneurs, as it applies to business people to say, look, you may have a chemical challenge. You may need some help that you don't know about. You may not just kick this. And it may be that you're not just down in the dumps. And I get, um, when you and I are done talking, I have a phone call with someone who's going through probably the down in the dumps version. And I can totally help them because I know all the same things you can control without medicine. I can totally teach them all of it in like half an hour. So I, through the COVID thing, I have talked to a mountain of people who are not used to depression. Here's the weird, funny kicker, Michael. Every one of the friends I know who deals with actual clinical has meds depression are doing great during this thing. Nobody can exactly explain it. We just have this weird feeling like, well, here we are. And it's, it's, it's like when you brakes go out, but it's a fun ride until the end. That's what it feels like. That's interesting. Yeah. How long have you struggled with depression? I don't struggle. I just deal. You know, I, uh, I don't have a fight. You can't win it. So you don't fight it. You just try to work with so many it. Years. I deal with depression and have dealt with it clinically diagnosed uh, 2012. Well, 2011. 2011. That was the first time I went into a room, sat with a nice bald man. And he said, you know, probably some meds would help. Um, but I felt it for a lot longer. A lot of people just don't get it diagnosed. They just think there's something wrong with them. I Googled it one time just to see what the markers were. And a lot of the sites, and I can't remember the quality of the sites, mind you. You know, the internet's not all true. Yeah. But a lot of them had like a checklist of 10 things. And it said, if you have seven of these 10 things, you're probably depressed. And the list of things are stuff that everybody could check. I don't know if they were getting ready to sell you something. But right. What's your feeling on that, that especially now, I mean, uh, advice for people that are, that are coping with uh, job changes, tight family quarters, um, uh, the, the pandemic, maybe even being physically sick from COVID? Sure. What do you, what do you, what do you have to say for people that, that are going through this? There's a whole kit. It's, it's so fast to go through, and, it, and it's a lot of it's, you know, number one, if you're dealing with depression, depression lies. Depression uses the phrase in your head always and never a lot. Like you lose your job and you think I'll never get a new job. Anytime the word never shows up, that's a depression thought. It's not a real thought. Always and, and never. So you have to know depression lies. Number two, everything in smaller bites. Everything. You're working on a big project, just work on the next part of the project. I'm not going to be able to pay my taxes next year. That's next year. You, you know, look at this week for right now. Look at right. this hour if you have to. Small bites. Number three. Uh, give yourself permission to, to slack in as many ways as you possibly can. Are your kids fed? Are, you know, are you out of danger? Is anyone shooting right now? You're good. Like if you don't shower for a day, I'll tell you, if you didn't shower for 20 days, who's going to know right now, right? You're going to look a little greasy on film. That's all you get. Yeah. You know, um, eat stupid things if you want to right now. Gain some weight right now. It's okay. I gained weight. I put on my COVID-19. But, you know, we're, it's all temporary. It's all temporary. It all comes back. I always tell people, like, they're worried, well, my kids aren't getting enough, whatever. Kids are resilient. Sadly and pretty accurately, most kids are thrilled to be inside with their devices all day. 
You know, getting them back outside is the harder part of your depression. Don't worry about it. I haven't read a single article or heard a single video from a kid saying, I want to get back to school. None of my kids want it. My kids, uh, one just graduated high school. He said, why was this not available? How come I couldn't Zoom to high school this whole time? I'm, I'm so much happier as a student. He's like contributing more in his classroom. His grades all went up in, in, in uh, quarantine. He had a way better experience. And he was already at a really small school, 25 or so people in the whole class, you know? Yeah. And he kicked it. And like at his graduation, which was held six feet apart from everybody with only him there, uh, like as students go, they said, you're amazing now. Like, I can't even, you're not even the same person who started the year. And he was like, I loved quarantine because he loved the, the, the tech. He loved Zoom. He loved the idea that, and nobody loves Zoom, but he loved the idea that, you know, he could show up and just kind of really just deliver his intellectual concept, not his bag of flesh. And so, I don't know, Michael, I think that people who are dealing with it, like if you lost your job, everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm not paying all my bills. Nobody's paying all their bills. There's 46 million people unemployed. Hundreds of thousands of people keep getting laid off at, at a full whack. One of my friends who's been with the company since it founded, he and 300 others just got let go. And it's nobody's fault. There's nothing going on, right? So, you know, uh, a friend of mine who's, uh, who's in HR, you would think somebody who's a senior level person in human resources could never possibly want for a job. He got let go. Because, uh, you know, the very specific part, they were, they were sort of feeding the travel industry. Guess who doesn't need any new employees? The travel industry. So if you're wondering, that, am I the only one? That's another lie that you get in depression. You're not. Everybody's messed up. It's okay. We're all going to get through. It, yeah. It's, it's going to hurt. And then, and then we're going to deal with it. Like we, this is not the 1920s depression. It's worse in a few ways, but we're all fed. Yeah. Well, in a way, it's like we're all, uh, what, do they, what do they call that? Uh, decadence, the age of decadence. You know, we're all amazingly comfortable considering we're in a pandemic. I mean, you can't compare this to any other worldwide disaster where people were homeless and jobless. And, right. I mean, I mean, it's been weird, but even, even the weirdness, even the COVID stuff, a very small percentage of the population getting sick and even smaller percentage dying, way too many. But the numbers are in our favor. I mean, it would have been terrible to have, I see a fatal, a fatal version of COVID, right? Paper towels and toilet paper were the Come biggest on. complaint, you know, go, rolling into March, you know, and I just thought, well, that's shenanigans. Turned out not to be, turned out to be really hard to get them until like sort of mid-May. Yeah. But, you know, it didn't change my life especially much. No. You know? and, and I think that, the hard parts, the medical stuff, you know, people getting ill, like many more people getting ill, this second wave coming. I really wish people would have stayed home. I really wish they would have wore their masks. We're going to make our way through. We're going to get there. You know, you seem like such a sensible person. What do you make of, what do you make of this scenario with uh, how things have been handled? I've been listening to Thomas Sowell a lot lately, uh, who's somehow speaking to me at this moment in time about He's not talking about the pandemic specifically, but he said something that really got my attention. He said, we're all looking for solutions to things. You know, should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Should we do this or this? And he said, there are no solutions. They're just trade-offs. Like everybody's trying to figure out the answer, but there is no answer. In, this, in the case of a virus, and I learned this a long time ago, two types of infection, bacterial and viral. Bacterial, you take meds. 
viral, time. You, you wait for the time to spin out. Uh, but have we been using the time well, Chris? No, of course not. No, not even a little. We, uh, in America for sure, we love to take medicine, not vitamins. Um, whether or not someone wants to agree or disagree with a mask, they're disagreeing or agreeing with science because a cough lobs a whole bunch of material out of you quite a distance. Even just regular talking lobs it pretty far. Six feet isn't the right number. It's just a number. And there's, it's, it's pure basic science on that level. Any of the other arguments are interesting, but if we had just done it, and if everyone had just sort of said, look, this is it. Like we are, there's lots of options. This is the one we're going to take. We're all just going to wear masks. We're all going to do this thing. Shut up and deal. New Zealand's up and running. Zero cases. There's a lot of other countries that are up and running. Minimal cases. Less than 100 a day. Less yeah. than 10 a day. Yeah. Um, we are the poster child. Us in Brazil, which is gross. Us in Brazil are the poster child for the worst behaved when it came to being able to knock this thing because uh, some people made it a political issue and others just are not in love with science. Science doesn't care what you think. They really, you know, science or religion, you know, what do they say? Man plans, God laughs. You know, it's the same feeling. When's your book coming out, baby? That is the question I really can't answer. Trust Agents, uh, the 10th anniversary one comes out in a tiny bit, sort of the fall of 2020. The other book I am uh, writing and dewriting. Uh, every single day still, so I can't tell you. Have you written a title? Because I know you oh, can't the backpack. use three words. The backpack. You have what you need to live. Uh, sorry. You have what you need to lead and win. The backpack. Excellent. And the idea is just that everything's so big, so why don't we make it smaller? What, what has to go in your backpack? And how does that personal leadership serve the rest of the world? Because now there's a lot of people working remotely. Now there's a lot of people who are on their own in some ways. And there's a lot of bosses who are, who are forced into teaching how to do remote leadership. And they were really bad at leadership to begin with in some very specific key elements because they trained button chair. Oh, you're not here at seven. You must not be a very devoted person. It's the dumbest way to manage in the human race. It is, you know, I see you. So you're there. You know, when we get out of that mentally, like seven months old. Seven months old, I could do this with my finger and do this, and you know my finger's still there. Yeah. Not bosses. So yeah. I, I think there's a lot to, to deal with. So my plan for the backpack is it's about that. And it's sort of about it's something we've been saying in, in my space for a very long time. You have to be a media company as well as what other company you are. And I think humans have to be human media companies. I think they have to broadcast a little more than they want to and a little more than they were used to or you're just pieces of a replaceable factory machine well you're broadcasting on twitter chris brogan people can find you at chrisbrogan.com any place else you want to send them anywhere you want to go where you see the name chris brogan it's probably me it's neither the british dj or that poor real estate man in new jersey who wishes he could get one of them chris brogan is fully available ladies and gentlemen Hey, thanks for doing this, bud. So happy. Thanks for having me on. It was a really good talk. My pleasure. We'll see you soon.